Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Artemis Take on Global Equities, a podcast series in association with Artemis Investment Management. I'm Katrin Schindler from CityWire and sitting across from me is Jakob de Tuschleck, who's a Global Income Fund Manager at Artemis. In this episode, we go back to basics and discuss the reasons behind changes in investment behavior and capital flows. Jakob, the doom and gloom that's dominating our headlines at the moment also has an effect on stock selection. And it seems that these days it's not about what you want anymore, but about what you need. So let's take a step back and start with an almost philosophical question, which is what does Maslow's hierarchy of needs actually have to do with equity investing? It's a good question. And it's sort of, I was speaking to clients and I was talking about where, what the companies that we invest in, what they do. And it's very much about, you know, when we invest in utilities that are cash flow generative and have dividends, they, they generate electricity. We kind of need that to function. Uh, we invest in, in energy companies, well, we need that as well. And we went sort of through where our sector overweights are. And increasingly over the last 18 months, that has been in what I would call asset-backed companies. So companies that actually either have something in the ground or something on ground, so REITs or infrastructure companies, listed infrastructure, companies that actually have tangible assets as opposed to the intangible world that really is where the equity returns have been for the past decade, well, up until about the beginning of this year. Um, and as I was going through it and sort of talking about, well, what the companies that we invest in, what do they provide as sort of shelter and energy and food? And suddenly I thought of this Maslow hierarchy of needs that I, you know, had had learned about a university maybe 25 years ago, and suddenly it occurred to me that we have very much been at the top of that pyramid, and at the top of the pyramid is all about, um, you know, realizing yourself, self-actualization, and, and prestige, and having a position in society, and it's, it's and, and that's not going away because humans are not going to change whether there's a crisis or not. We're going to be the same. We still want to want those things, um, but when there is a recession or when there is high inflation, and you have to rethink what it is you're spending your money on. And maybe, um, as we are seeing the bottom of the pyramid, so energy costs, food costs, housing costs, they're taking a bigger and bigger part of the wallet. A lot of the top of the pyramid suddenly becomes a little bit less relevant to some extent. Um, and we can see it when we read the papers today. The discussion is about the bottom of the pyramid. And that started with covid you know, some very tangible questions. Uh, you know, how can we get the right vaccine to the right people at the right time? How can we get the energy and so it doesn't go to someone else? You know, countries today are fighting for scarce resources after about 20 years where those resources have been, you know, been there. There's not been a shortage of energy. There's not been a shortage of, 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 of food. And therefore, we've sort of forgotten about it. And there's been very little investment into these sectors. And as we know, underinvestment leads to higher prices, which then attracts capital. But these cycles can be decade long. You don't just start producing copper out of the blue. You know, it takes years to find copper deposits and actually put in the, the, the capital and, and the equipment to, to, to mine it. And likewise with, with food. So where a lot of the investment over the last 10 years have been going to things at the top of the pyramid, things that we want, things that we like to be seen representing. So driving a Tesla because we're green. Um, well, now maybe it's going to be, can I afford to drive a car at all? Um, because the electricity is expensive and the, and the fuel is, the, the, the petrol is expensive. So we are sort of seeing a change in behavior where 
the growth rates that we saw for companies helping us at the top of the pyramid are coming down dramatically, whereas the growth rates, both earnings and, and, and top line, for many companies at the bottom that have been languishing for a while, those growth rates are coming up. And that, that's a change in the investment environment. So as we move away from the top of the pyramid, which you said is about self-actualization and move more towards the bottom, which is more about satisfaction of basic needs, what does that mean for companies that cater to that lifestyle of the rich, wealthy consumer like Peloton, like Tesla? Where do they stand? Again, like with everything in investment, we can't be black and white. We can't be dogmatic and, and nothing fits perfectly. I mean, there are companies at the top of the pyramid that will do amazingly well the next 10 years because there will always be wealthy people. There will always be people who want to spend money on self-actualization. Um, you know, you could put companies like uh, luxury goods, companies like LVMH, et cetera. They also sit at the top of the pyramid. But will there be people willing to, to spend a fortune on a handbag? Of course there will be or on expensive watches. So it's about, I think it's more a question of the marginal uh, the marginal dollar that the consumer can spend. You know, there is now much more competition for that. And Peloton was expensive, um, but it still catered to a pretty broad segment of the population. I'm sure a lot of them were bought using Klarna, et cetera, and maybe, you know, as a lot of these um, cheap, and quick and easy access to borrowed funds is coming down, maybe that also will have an impact. So I think there are companies at the top of the pyramid that will flourish because humans are humans and, and we want to spend on that. But there is a discussion as what actually is um, needed. And you know I can see it on my own behavior. Um, you start cutting down on streaming services. You start cutting down on a lot of things that are necessary because the mindset among all of us when we read the papers and we see that the bills come in is that you know there has to the the, the marginal dollar is not as loose as it was before yeah. now tech stocks have also suffered from that shift from top to bottom um, would you say that is that the sell-off is just a blip or is it a sign of something bigger so I think that we have to be a little bit more sort of there's nuances because there's tech and there's tech. I mean, there's there's a huge amount of sort of start-up or start-uppy companies, often with very, very big market caps, but still sort of in the early stages of their growth trajectory. Mm -hmm. These companies might have pretty nice top-line growth, but they've actually never delivered a profit. And for them, this is quite significant because they need cash from investors to keep growing. If they don't grow and they haven't delivered a profit, they, they might go under. That's obviously not the situation for the, the FANG stocks or, or, or the bigger tech stocks, which in many ways are sort of a combination of utility-like features, um, but also some kind of exposure to more, um, you know, the cloud, for example, et cetera. So I think we have to be a little bit uh, careful about the tech sector um, and I think I would, I would look at it more from the point of capital absorption versus capital return. Mm -hmm. If a company is cash flow positive and just decides that they want to invest those excess cash flows into new data centers or another vertical or going into a new market, that's a choice. They, they don't have to do it, and they might decide, well, we just want to keep that cash for when times get tough. 
or maybe we'd be very pleased if they started paying dividends. Um, if companies don't have cash flows, and it's all been about becoming a, a market leader um, in a category, and you've got a number of players competing for that position, and it's a sort of winner-takes-all kind of mentality. Well, everybody can't be a winner. And higher cost of capital, um, harder to get access to fresh capital, funding rounds getting canceled, will just means that, that finding the winner will be, a, be done quicker than it would otherwise. Um, so I, I, I think it's not a blip in that way. It's, a, it's, it's just as important as the tech bubble was when it burst 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't mean that companies providing these services won't be around in five years. It just might be in a different shape and, a, and in a different setup. Yeah. Um, what we are seeing is that a lot of old economy companies are fighting back. You know, a lot of companies we speak to, um, for example, within the, the one example could be within the, the container shipping market. They're actually putting a huge amount of money into making their sector way more digital. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they are taking away a lot of the middlemen that were providing the technology and essentially piggybacking on the investment that these old economy companies had done before. So there is also a response from these old economy companies that sit at the bottom of the pyramid saying, well, wait a second, why should we allow the top of the pyramid to kind of eat, benefit from all the investment we've done? And a classic example is Netflix benefiting from the fact that old economy telcos and cable companies were putting all this fiber and cable in the ground so the last mile delivery, or let's say the apps, could then use all that capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and next time we need to put in cable in the ground, I'm sure that the people putting, putting fiber down are going to have a think about how they can get a piece of, you know, maybe that means that there'll be some kind of integration. And we're always seeing sort of talks about M&A between uh, providers of, of streaming services and, and, and the tech companies. But, you know, it, it will lead to some kind of reorganization because ultimately a lot of the top of the pyramid is built, as pyramids are, <laughs> are built on top of the bottom, and, and that's where a lot of the investment is going now. So is that where the capital is going to flow in companies, older companies, as you said, that are currently modernizing or trying to keep up with the current development? Well, I think they'll take a bigger share of you could call it the risk capital out there. Because the cost of capital for a lot of companies at the top of the pyramid, that cost of capital was probably set too low in my opinion. And the cost of capital at the bottom of the pyramid is probably about right. So suddenly as an investor, when you have to allocate your capital, you might think actually the risk reward at the bottom is better now than it was before. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that maybe the risk at the top was not appreciated. Mm. You know, we're seeing massive layoffs in, in, in the tech sector and, and, and a lot of companies just need capital, otherwise they won't be able to, to, to continue. So it is an opportunity for the bottom of the pyramid companies to go and say, well, if we want to, maybe we can acquire some of the companies that were taking our lunch uh, and maybe we can actually now use it as a way to, to, to fight back a bit. I mean, a classic example is, for example, hotel companies that now have websites where you go onto their website because you're guaranteed the lowest price. Why do you need to go to an aggregator? True. So it's just taken 10, 15, 20 years for these um, airlines, hotel providers, et cetera, to come up with their own infrastructure. That means that they actually own the customer. So they're fighting back and getting the client. We're seeing the same in, in container freight where a lot of the container shipping companies 
they're taking out the freight forwarders because they're saying, no, we want, we want the client to come directly to us as opposed to going via someone else. So there is a massive fight back now for the, for the end client. And a lot of that, again, Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, means that a lot of the power is now going down in the pyramid rather than just going up. As we're going through that rebalancing process, um, how many investors would you say are kind of burying their heads in the sands because they don't want to realize maybe what's going on at the moment because they like the old structures, they like what was happening up to the, let's say, outbreak of the pandemic? When things changed? Look, we're in an industry where everybody's talking their own book. I'm talking my own <laughs> book. I'm an income investor. So I, I like it when utilities outperform tech. You know, that's a good environment for us. A lot of investors who have done tremendously well over the last 10 years will have had big investments in, in, in the growthier segments of the market. And they will have an investment strategy and a process that does well when they these companies are doing better. So I, I think that's... I wouldn't call it bury your head in the sand. It's just whenever there's a regime change, there is a natural fight back because people don't want to turn 180 degrees. Um, but I think what we are seeing now is not just sort of a, a classic sort of six-month change and then we're going to go back. Yes, some tech companies will do amazingly over the next 10 years. I've no doubt about that. Um, but what we did see maybe in the period sort of 15 to 20 was a very narrow market driven by very few high-growing tech stocks. And I think that we're not going back to that any anytime soon. Okay. And focusing on your fund, what impact did um, recent events have on the performance of the Artemis Global Income Fund? So, so we've benefited from it because we, we have been overweight soft commodities, commodities, energy, defense for a while. We don't have exposure to tobacco. Um, and you know, the, the, the best sectors, the best performing sectors year to date globally has been a lot of the things that people don't like to hold or can't hold, tobacco, defense, energy. Um, we, have a, we are overweight energy. Um, we are overweight, um, I would say, upstream um, because what, what, we, what, we, what we've tried to do in the portfolio is essentially move as high upstream as we can. Mm -hmm. So who actually owns the asset? Um, and that is equivalent to sort of saying who has the copper in the ground, who has the oil in the ground, who owns the building that's been rented out, who has the tangible asset that you can fall back on when everything else fails. Mm -hmm. um, and we think at a time of, of higher inflation and sort of quite sluggish demand in some areas, at least you have the asset at the end of the day. You don't have to continue to burn through cash. So the portfolio is very tangible. It's very sort of... Uh, old-fashioned in that in that respect. Um, what we've avoided has been the old economy stocks like industrials that sit in between where they're getting squeezed by higher input prices. And although commodity prices have come down a lot recently, we still think that we are sort of more or less in a in a, in a bull period for those assets. So I think that what we've tried to avoid are, are companies that are seeing margin pressure from sluggish demand from the consumer and then higher input prices um, and just go very upstream. We have some downstream assets on the consumer side, but that's very much in the, in the, in the farm and the stable areas. Um, but it's not, I mean, there's a lot of talk about where does pricing power sit? Mm -hmm. And one view that, that I have, which is maybe counterintuitive, is that 
we all know that software companies have pricing power. Mm -hmm. That's why they trade on high multiples. I'm not arguing against that. Where we think there is room for multiple expansion are the companies that we thought had no pricing power, but might have a bit of pricing power. Such as? You can say green steel manufacturers. Hmm. You know, actually, um, if you're an industrial in Europe, you want to buy your steel from a responsible manufacturer. You can call it green steel or whatever, something that is, you know, some steel with an attached carbon offset to it or done without using a very dirty nickel from an Indonesia, something like that. And suddenly things that are commoditized are not commoditized anymore because you're not competing with a very low-cost manufacturer somewhere else in the world where there are a lot of negative environmental externalities. Yeah. And suddenly there's pricing power, and we're seeing it from a number of our companies in the portfolio that say, yeah, you know, what we're selling is commoditized, but we can provide... Uh, we can provide full disclosure on the carbon footprint of our product, or we can work with the customer to optimize the supply chain. And when supply chains are in disarray, customers are no longer just going for the cheapest stuff. Mm. They want to make sure they can get it. Um, so, so this move actually is quite helpful for companies that are still running very well, but they've been seen as being commoditized. Mm. As they get a bit of pricing power back, a bit of control over the customer, I think that's a more interesting aspect than discussing whether they have pricing power or not. We know they don't, but they might have a bit. Yeah. And that's the change we've seen over the last 18 months, especially because supply chains are still in disarray and, and they have been for a while now. Oh, interesting. And one final question to wrap it up and looking at a different aspect, what role does duration play for you these days? Well, it plays a massive role because over the last, you know, throughout the period since the financial crisis when, when there's been a lot of liquidity in the markets, um, investors, we've sort of been accustomed to the fact that, that money has little value. And if, if $100 10 years from now are worth $100 today, then you don't mind buying long-duration kind of high-return tickets. Um, if suddenly that $100 in 10 years' time, if you're using a discount rate, which is the risk-free plus a cost of capital, uh, and, you, or, or, uh, plus the, and, and then you got your WAC getting quite high in your DCF, suddenly that $100 10 years from now is not $100 today. And suddenly time value of money starts, matter, starts to matter, and duration starts to matter. So in equities, it's a slightly different concept in equities to talk about duration than it is in, in, in bonds, but, you know, Let's say some of the companies we have in the portfolio will have free cash flow yields of, let's say, 10, 12, 15 percent, which we think is sustainable. Maybe some of them are earning some super normal profits, but we think they can be above 10, 12 percent for a while. That means that your payback, if that free cash flow to equity is 10 percent, you know, you hold the stock for 10 years and, and the company has, 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 has kind of made the money. Um, so that duration is much shorter then a lot of the companies that sit at the top of the pyramid that even if they are cash flow positive might have you know durations of 100 years so definitely as cost of capital is going up in general the risk-free rates are going up inflation is going up volatility is going up um, our shorter duration portfolio on the equity side um, is something that has benefited us especially over the last sort of six seven eight months fantastic Jakob, thank you very much. 
make sure you check back for the third episode where we'll talk about the double whammy of volatility and inflation. And if you haven't done so already, have a listen to the first episode where we've discussed the impact of macro events on equity markets. Thanks for listening and see you next time.